Welcome to What's Up? Wellness from the Third Floor. This podcast is provided by the Wellness and Health Action Team, also known as WHAT, from Portland State University's Center for Student Health and Counseling, or SHAC. We're located in the old tutoring center suite on the third floor of the University Center building on campus. Our purpose with this podcast is to discuss a variety of health-related topics in a way that will be accessible for our non-traditional campus. My name is Miranda, and my pronouns are she, her. My name is Quinn, and my pronouns are he, him. And my name is Julie, and my pronouns are she, her. We're all members of the Wellness and Health Action Team, and we'll be the hosts for this podcast, so let's get into it. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to another episode. Um, I'm Quinn Westland, use he, him, his pronouns. Y'all might remember me um, from previous episodes last year, um, but I'm kind of back to like do uh, like a passion project long form episode for this term. Um, and we are joined today um, by Amy Ruff. Um, you also might remember them from previous episodes. Um, so thank you and, and welcome back, Amy. Do you want to introduce yourself or add anything? Sure. Thanks for having me, Quinn. Um, it's been said, I'm Amy Ruff. I'm a licensed clinical social worker, and I am the mental health promotion specialist at SHAC on the health promotion team. So I don't practice clinically at SHAC, but I do outside of my time at PSU. And historically, uh, since I've been a social worker, and even prior to that, when I was a public school teacher, I've worked with lots of folks that have experienced trauma in many different forms. And thank you so much again for being a part of like this episode and a part of the team. Like you provide such awesome insight and I'm excited to go like steal some of your knowledge um, and like share it with the share. listeners. We'll share episode, it. So. We'll share the knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Um, I also kind of want to like lay down real quick some intentionality um, behind this like episode um, and kind of offer up through that um, a little bit of a content warning. Um, as you might have guessed with the title um, and descriptor of this episode, we're going to be uh, kind of doing like a 101 course on um, understanding trauma. So kind of uh, we've touched on it before in previous episodes and explained like how it can show up in our communities and some ways of like like heal- healing that and working through it. But we haven't really like been able to like hold space to like really dive into like what it is and like really explaining all the nuances of that. Um, so through this episode, we're hopping hoping to like kind of offer up the space to do that. Um, but by doing that, we will be talking about trauma. Um, our goal is to not go into in-depth about anything, like any traumatic events in particular, um, but more so to just, you know, gain, gain that understanding um, like of what it is, how it can show up um, and some other things here and there. But um, just know that, you know, Topics might be mentioned offhandedly throughout this episode that, that could be triggering for folks. Um, so like, please take care of yourself. Um, it's a podcast, which is a beautiful tool. So you can pause it at any time um, and take a break and come back to it. Or just, you know, you don't have to engage with this media if it's not the right time and space for you. So um, going into this with intention and, and just hopefully um, reminding y'all like, Deep breath throughout, do some self-care before and after, and um, hopefully uh, you'll learn some stuff um, along the way and through this, but also in taking care of yourself. Um, is there anything um, involving like intentions that you'd like to add, Amy? No, I think that was really well said, Quinn. I hope this serves as maybe a primer for some folks or um, makes you more curious about learning more about your own experiences or the experiences of folks around you. My intent has. 
awesome. Love that. Um, yeah. So with all of that said, I guess we can just start jumping right into the topic. So broad, broad, broad topic, but uh, what, how would we like, I guess, professionally in like that clinical world, how do we define trauma? What exactly like is it? Yeah. And actually right before I say that, maybe I could have offered this up with my intention. I just want to name that there are multiple multiple ways of knowing and understanding this human experience. Um, And it's different for people and cultures around the world, but we've been negotiating in dealing with these experiences since humans arrived on this planet. Um, And so, you know, what I'm offering today, as you said, is is grounded in neuroscience. Uh, I'm a queer white person uh, who is steeped in social work theory and practice. And so that's very much the lens that I'm bringing. And so this is one way of knowing and understanding, um, but it is certainly not the definitive way of knowing and understanding. So I just want to throw that out before I give you definitions and we we jump in further. (laughs) No, I I really love that. And like, thank you um, for mentioning like that and bringing that up. hopefully throughout this episode too, we'll, we'll reiterate that and point that out um, through different um, uh, professionals within the field that kind of cross different, um, they apply intersectionality of lenses within their work, um, as well as just, again, reiterating it. This is just kind of the Western psychological medical model of understanding um, trauma and kind of what's accepted um, in like our Western academic um, field as like the definition currently, but there's lots of definitions and that's getting we're hoping to challenge that within academia and kind of within this episode, hopefully add some of that challenge in there. But thank you so much for um, stating that. I can actually like trouble it right off the bat. You know, the working definition that I've been operating with and sharing with people is that trauma is the body's response to an event, a series of events, or an ongoing circumstance that is experienced as physically or emotionally harmful or life-threatening. And that has lasting effects on how the individual relates to the world. Now that definition is a mashup of SAMHSA, which is the Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration, and Resma Menachem, uh, who is a social worker. He is a black man and he wrote the book, My Grandmother's Hands, that is primarily concerned with healing racialized trauma. And really what Resma added to SAMHSA's definition was that trauma is the body's response to these events. Uh, I think previously I had conceptualized it many other folks did as it is this event. It is the car accident that is the trauma. But in reality, we know that it is how our body carries that event and how that affects how we interact with the world. Um, And I think that goes nicely into the next point that trauma is always an individualized response. So how, so we might say Quinn be in the same car accident and how we walk away from that car accident and how we heal and how we make meaning of that is going to be very different. And perhaps I hold on to it differently. It lives in my body differently, and it has lasting impacts on my ability to ride in cars for the future. But perhaps you're able to get different resources around that event, and it is not that for you. It doesn't live in your body. It does not reshape your your relationship to driving in cars. And so it's very much individualized in that regard. Um, It's also worth noting Uh, that trauma does disproportionately affect the most vulnerable. Um, And by that, we know that folks who have the most resources to manage uh, a traumatic, a potentially traumatic event or a stressful event are going to be able to heal and recover greater than those that have fewer resources. Um, And we can think of that 
you know, really practically like resources as in monetary things like access to mental health care or access to health care. But we know also, you know, a huge resource uh, if we experience trauma or something that is extremely stressful uh, is having people in our lives that validate that experience, that acknowledge that it happened and that give witness to what we just endured. Um, we know that it can be really invalidating for folks to say that wasn't a big deal or that didn't happen in worse, in a worse case. Um, and so those are the types of resources we're thinking about. And there's also communal resources, which we'll talk about a bit later when we're talking about how folks heal and recover from trauma, but having community that engages in ritual that comes together um, to commune and to co-regulate <laughs> is also uh, really important. And then there's kind of three other big pieces that I did want to mention is that trauma can be experienced collectively, historically, and generationally. Uh, and collectively, one simple example right now is this pandemic that we're all living through. <laughs> you know, for some folks, it is not a traumatic event. I want to make that clear. But for many people who are experiencing grief and loss or extreme anxiety as a result and just precarity and overwhelm, it is a traumatic event and it is collective. We're all experiencing this at the same time, or many of us are experiencing this at the same time. Um, historical trauma, I will offer Kai Cheng Tom's uh, definition, which I really appreciate. And Kai is an activist and an advocate and an educator and an artist as well. Uh, and she says that historical trauma is the story of wounding that is carried by an entire group of people and that informs individual expressions of conflict. So there are these stories of wounding that we tell people in our lines and uh, folks that share similar identities about how we were harmed and by whom we were harmed. And we can hold on to those and re-experience that harm even if the initial event we were not a part of, which is somewhat similar to the idea of generational trauma, which is this idea that, um, Trauma, because it impacts our stress hormones and how our body functions, um, primarily it sends cortisol and adrenaline into our system. Uh, it changes the way that our genes express themselves. So it doesn't change our gene structure necessarily, but the expression of those genes changes as a result of exposure to high levels of stress hormones. And so through epigenetics, we can pass down trauma to different generations. So I might be carrying in my body and in my felt experience with the world, trauma that was incurred by my grandparents or maybe by my great grandparents that still hasn't been resolved in our ancestral line. So just wanted to trouble things by adding those three extra kind of categories of trauma there. Cause I think so often we just think of it as this one thing that happened to me. No, I, I, I absolutely, I, I love that. And thank you for like bringing those into like the conversation as well. Cause we definitely want to piece those apart a little bit more and gosh there's like there's like several directions um of like questions like like see coming like out of that that I want to touch on um one thing I think circling back to like the start of that is just um I, historically within like you know psychology and like mental health and like the medical model of like how like trauma and like discussions around trauma have been discussed um, there really is like a, I, I don't know, I have personal conflicts with like the, the big T trauma, little T trauma, um, like descriptors, um, 
on how we like put weight in certain events. Um, and then like culturally, like the, or, you know, in like American culture, I should say, like the dominant American, like white culture, like the idea of like, um, of trauma and traumatization being kind of, I don't know, a stigmatized, um, a, a, describing someone as that is like talking, using that as like a descriptor of like weakness or it's like their fault that they're feeling that way. Um, instead of like looking at like the events, you're looking at the individual. Um, I don't know if, if, is there, could you like kind of like elaborate a little bit more on that and like how that shows up um, and in ways that we can like work on kind of like changing that like narrative of those ideas? Yeah, you know, and I know one way that I think gets a lot of traction or allows people who would not otherwise offer empathy or even sympathy to folks who are experiencing trauma on any level, whether they would label that a big T or a little T, um, is when we move away from this idea that um, being mentally tough would prevent us from having or experiencing trauma and really looking at it to consider that trauma is a way that our nervous system is activated and it is rewiring. So our responses to it are not often, they're not conscious responses in most cases. They are unmediated by our thinking brain or our prefrontal cortex. They're actually having, they're happening along our spinal column, along the parasympathetic and our sympathetic nervous system. And so when we, for some reason, for some folks have to take it out of the hands of the mind, because if it's in your mind and then you're responsible for it and you can rationally think your way out of it. But we know that that's actually not the case uh, when it comes to trauma. So my body's response, again, if we go back to that, you know, car accident metaphor, you know, forbid, but my body's response is going to be different than yours because our nervous systems are fundamentally wired uniquely and differently. And it's worth noting that they are wired as a result of the environments that we grew up in. They're wired based on our exposure to stress or potentially trauma or adverse experiences as a young person. And those experiences inform every activation or every stressor or every potential traumatic event thereafter. Um, so it has this compound, it can have this compounding effect so that folks that are maybe most sensitive to acute stress and trauma um, maybe have larger reactions to it than necessarily someone who has always had a safe mediated environment where they always had all of their needs met, <laughs> you know? Um, and so I think it's really important to recognize that all of our experiences inform our reactions to any event that we encounter. And we need to get away from this idea that um, if it's not big for me, if it's not a big deal for me, it's not a big deal for you. You know, it's just not how it works within our bodies and our systems. Yeah, thank you for that. Like the 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 context is something that gets like overlooked um, a lot. I, I feel like especially like in um, academia and like like research and like just the medical psychological like model that we work within in this country. Um, but like context is like everything for stuff. So thank you for touching on that. And and in that you kind of like mentioned and brought up um like, like stressors versus mm -hmm. trauma can we take a second to kind of like 
define or kind of like flesh out the difference between like what's like like a really like acute or like toxic stress situation um, and what's trauma? Um, are they completely different? Like what's their relationality there? Yeah, well, they're worth, I bring them up because the, um, our body's reaction to them, I mean, they're threats, right? A traumatic event um, is a threat to our well being and our emotional well being. And stressors generally are responses to things in our environment that we perceive to be threats or that we recognize that we need to do something in order to meet the demands of the situation. So we know that much stress is positive, you know, where there's brief increases in our heart rate. There's mild elevation in our stress hormones um, that allows, you know, our body to lock in and get into flow states. You know, it's how we prepare for tests and how we take tests. Um, so stress isn't inherently bad or traumatic or toxic, but we know that the intensity of stress increases and our, tolerab our tolerability becomes more serious um, when those temporary stress responses are um, more frequent. So it's prolonged. So our, our stress response continues, you know, it's like thinking about how you are operating in your body in week six versus how you're operating in your body in week 11, right? You're pulling on more resources. You're, uh, you know, needing fuel storage, you're drinking more coffee. You're just maybe going on fumes, folks say, and maybe you're super nervous, you know, there's butterflies and you're using that energy, that stressful energy to, to drive your work. Um, but that can become toxic if there is no end to that stress response, right? You need finals week to end, right? You need to be able to take a nap and drink some water. <laughs> and also we know that a huge piece of, um, you know, stress that's tolerable and stress that's toxic, the big difference is our access to resources to manage that stress in relationships, so when there is no, when there are no resources to help you mediate the stressor that's in your environment, or there's no protective relationship, there's no one that says, I see what you're going through. Can I help you with this? Just know that you're not alone. That's when that situation can become toxic. And toxic stress inherently can become traumatic if it starts to live in our body and our body starts to process similar experiences in the same way. So even when the initial stressor has passed, you know, the initial toxic stressor has passed, it's gone, finals week is over. But if your body is responding to um, doing your homework, the memory of it in your body and in your brain is feeling like it did during finals week when you were not prepared for your final and you walked into the classroom and you're remembering it and your alarm system is going off even though you're not being handed a final, you know, in the middle of the term, if that makes sense. I hope that one, <laughs> that one added up. <laughs> Yeah, is it safe to say and kind of describe that then um, that through that prolonged, like, right, like neurons that fire together, wire together, right? If yes. we're mm -hmm. creating that, you know, that prolonged stressors like in our life and it's like being felt like that, it's like rewiring um, your like connections in such a way that, that, it, that it does become like that. Oh, it, I see something like it's conditioned to like bring all of that up, all that like felt. Yeah, absolutely. Stuff. And I mean, I think another piece too about um, trauma, or at least the definition that we're working with, um, is that it has long lasting effects on how the individual relates to the world, right? So the story, my understanding of how the world works and how I keep myself safe in it is fundamentally different when something is trauma, right? So toxic stress, it might be 
this is just what it feels like to be in finals week. And I'm horribly prepared this year. And I'm even going to like freak out when I'm handed some homework and have trouble with that and maybe start sweating. And I don't need to be, but I'm still able to understand that if I prepare and I go to classes, this will happen and then it'll end and then I will be okay. You know, the, the story we tell ourselves about being able to protect ourselves and stay safe changes after a traumatic event. Doesn't necessarily after a toxic stress event, but it can, you know, it can. I think that we're all actually, we're in a period of time where we're all exposed to some toxic stress given this pandemic. Uh, and it kind of remains to be seen how our relationship to the world changes as a result of the stress that we've been exposed to for so long. So in talking about like both stress and like trauma, um, those are both like really like felt, <clears throat> well, my voice, felt like embodied things. Um, can we kind of flesh out and go more in detail? Like how do those show up um, within the body? Like what, what are kind of the reactions that might, um, you know, be like felt or displayed or like acted out because of that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so if you are in a calm state, you're sitting down, you're grounded, you're present, um, you're open to new information, and then a stressor enters your environment, whether that is a barking dog or you're in class and it's a pop quiz that you have not studied for, right? Your sympathetic nervous system is going to respond. And that is going to inherently increase your blood pressure, your heart rate, your adrenaline, and it is going to demand that your body respond to take some action around the threat that's in your environment. Um, you know, we might be worried or anxious and potentially even angry as a result of it. Um, and if it's so great, if that threat that's in your environment is so great, it might even cause us to feel overwhelmed and then we shut down, right? Our body says, I can't handle this. I'm feeling helpless. I'm feeling numb and I'm tapping out, right? And even then our heart rate will decrease, our blood pressure will decrease, but so will our ability to connect with other people. Um, and, you know, our eye contact will be less and we'll just be shut down, right? Dissociated even. Um, so that's a common response to a stressor or a threat that's in your environment. So how trauma reacts with that is that someone might be, or someone, something might be considered traumatic or a trauma might've happened to you um, that you perceive something in your environment to be a threat that might not be an active threat, but the memory of what was previously a threat matches what's in your current environment. And you might be sitting around a bunch of other people who are all grounded and talking and feeling good and enter, say, this dog. And maybe this dog is on a leash and no one else is concerned about it, but you have a, a history with a dog that has potentially harmed you in the past. And so your body responds as if it needs to pour adrenaline into your limbs and you need to get up and you need to get out of the way because this dog will harm you. Maybe you get up and you run away from your group, right? So your response is being mediated by your previous experience and that trauma that has lived in your body, that response you have to dogs that is different than those folks that are around you. So trauma can kind of make us jump around on that activation response in ways that 
uh, aren't as plain as simply, I go into action, I go into fight or flight, or I go into freeze if it's so bad. You know, it's like we might be moving around on that kind of hierarchy of response in ways that um, don't seem rational or are different than other people that are in our environment that perceive them to be different. Um, and I do want to make a point um, that I'm talking when I say something that's a threat or an activation in your environment. These are commonly called triggers. Um, that's most commonly people say like there's a trigger that causes you to act like something. I try not to use the term trigger, trying to demilitarize my language and move away from uh, weapons as a way to describe our felt experiences. <laughs> but that it probably resonates with a lot of folks. So that's what I mean by being activated or feeling a threat that's coming from your environment. Oh, thank you. And I, I appreciate you bringing that up because I that's a terminology that gets brought up um, quite a bit in this work. Um, and it was, that's a lens that I haven't heard um, like expressed by someone before. Um, so thank you. Something, always learning something new. I really appreciate <laughs> that. Um, in kind of touching on that, we're really like hammering home in those like physiological like responses um, to that. Um, I know um, that also gets discussed occasionally are like revolving around um, like conditioned um, responses that might pop up. Um, in particular, I'm thinking um, there's talk of right, in flight, flight, freeze, the common like reaction, like labels. I also hear discussed um, you know, more and more frequently, like fawn. I was wondering if you could kind of jump into that and kind of explain like the difference um, compared to the other three and like also like just how it might show up. Yeah, so maybe a place to start would be to give an example of what fawn might look like. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been trying to, I've been racking my brain for a less stereotypical obvious example, but I haven't come up with one yet and I will work on it for, for folks in the future. But I think a very simple way to understand a fawn response to a threat in your environment would be the example of potentially a small woman who's at a bar uh, and is standing by the bar and is maybe by herself waiting for friends to arrive and potentially a very large man approaches her and does that in a way that is aggressive or does that in a way where it is physically imposing so the conversation or the way that the man is around that woman makes it so that it doesn't feel like the woman could easily leave the scenario, right? And so potentially this man wants to buy the woman a drink and maybe is flirting with her. And so physiologically in this woman, she might be responding with adrenaline and cortisol and going into fight mode. But she's aware that if I go, if if I attempt to fight or if I attempt to meet this person with rage or I meet this person with no, that is only going to increase the level of threat in my environment. That's only gonna serve to make this person mad. So instead of choosing to uh, engage in a fight or in in telling them to back off, this person then um, maybe flirts back to the man and and gives them a little bit more time and smiles at them, maybe gives them a fake phone number, maybe says things like, yeah, I'll talk to you later about that because that decreases the level of intensity that is coming from the man and creates more safety for that person, for that woman in that environment. And I apologize for that being such a binary heteronormative (laughs) example, Um, but I thought it was the simplest way that we could offer what fawn might look like in practice. And it obviously takes on 
a lot more complicated behaviors. Um, but the reason why font isn't often listed when we say fight, flight, or freeze, or when we talk about you know common uh, responses to stressors in your environment um, is because it's not necessarily driven by the nervous system, right? So in this case, the nervous system is activated and then the behavior is mediated by the individual to achieve optimal safety. And I think oftentimes this behavior gets stigmatized or labeled as like manipulative or somehow because you mediated the response, it means you had more agency than perhaps you actually do in the scenario. And, and I tend to think that when we do this, it's, there's a whole lot of uh, misogyny at play often when it comes to fawn responses or the, the pejorative labeling of them. Um, but it's a lack of understanding of what context is and what is actual real choice and how safety could actually be achieved by the individual. Thank you for touching on that and kind of like breaking it down. Um, kind of like, not that we've kind of got like our responses like labeled, I, I do want to kind of delve a little bit deeper um, into like the fight, flight, freeze. Um, there's a really lovely theory that I know a lot of like therapists and counselors love to throw like around and is getting like talked about and like explored more. Um, so polyvagal theory um, is the label for that. If anybody doesn't know, we've, me and uh, Logan are our previous uh, like other psych nerd um, within what um, we talked about that a couple of times, but I was wondering if you could like touch on polyvagal theory, like one, just like what it is and also how it plays into that fight, flight, freeze. Yeah, so Dr. Stephen Porges came up with polyvagal theory and this idea of neuroception, which is um, describing how the autonomic nervous system scans for cues of safety and danger and life threat without conscious thought. Um, and Dr. Porges posits that that process informs the stories that we tell ourselves about the world and the shape that it takes in our daily life. So much like trauma, um, but really, uh, Dr. Porges and polyvagal theory is grounding those autonomic responses in the vagus nerve, uh, which runs from our brain stem and it has many branches. It's considered the wanderer because it goes to our chest and to our heart and through our intestines and our spleen, um, and then that is the, the nerve that is largely mediating these unconscious responses that we feel in our body. So the idea of like, I feel butterflies in my stomach, we would say like, that's your vagus nerve, that's your vagus nerve doing something <laughs> and acting up. Um, and in addition to naming the vagus nerve as the central piece of the autonomic nervous system that is mediating a lot of these responses, um, Dr. Porges offers that there are two main stems of the vagus nerve. And one is the ventral vagal nerve, which uh, is originates in the brain stem, the neck and the facial muscles. So I like to say like the ventral vagal is your head and your heart. And um, Dr. Porges offers that that nervous, part of your nervous system is firing and doing the most uh, when we are safe, when we are in a social state. So like when we are sitting down and having food with friends, like our ventral vagal nerve is the one that is most at play and is most active. That's the grounded, the joyful state, the easy breathing, our immune system's working state that we're in. Um, and then he offers that the dorsal vagal branch of the vagus nerve, which again, originates in the brainstem and includes the stomach, the liver, the spleen, the small intestines, um, 
responds to cues of extreme danger. So that is the one that's respond, uh, responsible for like dissociation or freezing or numbing or that shutting down when we need to take care of ourselves. And then the, you know, the other piece that we're not, we haven't quite mentioned then is the sympathetic nervous system. So the, the ventral vagal and the dorsal vagal are parts of our parasympathetic nervous system. And then that fight or flight or mode of that action place is the sympathetic nervous system. And that exists along our brainstem and has little branches thereafter. So there's many pieces. That was kind of a haphazard piece. I really wish I could show all of our listeners some, uh, some pictures of the vagus nerve and kind of how this is mediated throughout the body. Um, but really, I think the main thing to take away from is that with the polyvagal theory, um, we're, we're grounding our, our responses to stress in the body. It's really moving it away from the idea that it's all a mediated rational brain um, thing that's happening, right? That it's not just in the brain, it's our body. And in fact, uh, I think Dr. Fort, Dr. Porges um, theorizes that 80% of the vagus nerves, they fire, they communicate from the body to the brain. So 80% of the feedback that we get about danger potentially in our environment, we feel it because our body responds unconsciously to it. Whereas 20% then of the firing of that nerve is the brain communicating with the body. So it really puts the onus and it really changes the way uh, that we relate to our trauma, that we grapple with our trauma and we transform from our trauma. It takes it a bit out of our brain as the source in the area to focus on and puts the onus on getting into our body and, and figuring out what's going on there. I think too, to like touch on with that, it really like challenges that like, like really long held like Descartes like like philosophy mind body disconnect that like the Western like medical model um, is like really like married onto for for you know hundreds of years now at this point and it's like it's still like present definitely see it like challenged more and more in like the mainstream like kind of psychology um, medical spheres but like that is like so ingrained in like the culture of like medicine that we see like. Um, in the United States. Um, and I just, I, I love, don't love that trauma exists. Um, and I, it, but like, but I love that, that through this study of this, it's like really, um, I don't know, it really like is kind of like slapping in the face of like Western, like understanding of like, hey, there's so many other like um, cultures that I, and I think um, in particular, I can like speak um, like on, um, uh, like Dr. Michael Yellowbird, he's a um, like a like social worker and teacher um, and neuroscience advocate, um, and like really incorporates um, like indigenous like um, research paradigm and like understanding into like the work um, that he does within like mental health um, in the fields. Uh, and he just, I think he's like such an I don't know if y'all haven't listened to him, a thousand percent go listen to him. But he's a really good job of like pointing this out of like, hey, look, this has been understood in like cultures for hundreds of thousands of years. Um, Y'all are just now catching up, but since you are catching up, like let's talk about this and like really like highlight and show um, just how wrong that like, right, that the idea that our brains are, can override our bodies. Yeah, um, we're, we're inherently thinking, feeling beings. Like we're thinking, <laughs> feeling beings and uh, white culture is like, we're thinking beings. And if you, you rationalize your way through things and that's the source of the problem. And in fact, 
we're we're thinking, feeling beings. And I appreciate you mentioning Dr. Michael Whitebird and going back to or Yellowbird, uh, and mentioning that there are all these historical ways that cultures and peoples have dealt with the experiences of trauma and stress that live in our body. That when we apply neuroscience to them, we're able to say now, like, oh yeah, that's a direct intervention based on my thinking, understanding of what trauma is. Um, and we can talk about that a little bit more when we get to, you know, what recovery and healing can look like for folks. Oh yeah, we'll absolutely circle back to that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think before we get um, into the the meat of that kind of conversation, I do want to kind of steer it. Um, back towards kind of talking around um, Mm -hmm. in the previous examples that we've given, um, I'm specifically thinking like that car accident one. And I think a lot of um, like that understanding, um, like mainstream understanding of trauma and like descriptions of trauma, it really talks about like like, um, more like physical like events that can happen um, in like short-term, like one-off experiences. Um, I, I'm curious to like explore a little bit and like talk more around um, how like relational um, like trauma can show up and like what that might look like within an individual. Yeah, you know, I think you're maybe talking a bit about emotional neglect <laughs> um, and emotional abuse that can happen or um, not having your social and emotional needs met, especially as a young child. That's when we see that manifest a lot for folks. Um, And when the folks that are tasked with taking care of us or purport to be our caretakers, when people say, I'm going to take care of you, when those are also the people that harm us or the people that don't provide support, that can be inherently traumatic. Um, because we know, you know, if we go back to even the definition, it's a circumstance that is experienced as emotionally harmful or life-threatening. So there is a threat to our well-being when the folks that are closest to us are saying that they're going to provide something and then they don't, right? That leaves us, especially when we're younger and we're more vulnerable because young children are more vulnerable than adults, right? Um, that has, that can have a more serious and lasting impact on our functioning and the way we relate to the world. since we've kind of like covered like responses um, and in different like ways trauma might be like incurred um, throughout life. Um, I think really like the thing I, I feel like both of us are very passionate about talking about is like, how do you take those experiences um, and like, what does the healing process look like? How does one like go about it? How does it show up within the body, within like communities? that kind of stuff. Um, like it's really like our like passion and drive is like folks that want to be um, within like the mental health field. Yeah, absolutely. And I always, I have been starting to reconcile or use the term just transformation um, mm-hmm. as opposed to healing because we can heal from trauma and we absolutely can recover from it, but we can't undo it. It's not just going to go away, right? So if you consider it like a wound, there will still be a scar. There will still be a lasting visible and physical impact from that event. Um, so I think of transformation in, in kind of as we move towards healing is the process by which we integrate our experiences of trauma and toxic stress and we turn them into something different. And I think it's important to know that trauma 
will inherently turn us into something different, right? And inherently impacts our body and our functioning in the world. But when we heal and we want to seek recovery from it, we are mindfully and intentionally in engaging and integrating that experience of harm in such a way that we can move forward uh, and meet the demands that life is throwing at us and live a life that feels good and authentic to us. Yeah. I, there's a, there's a phrase that gets um, talked about a lot and I'd love for like, kind of like dialogue more around like, like what is um, like neuroplasticity and how can that be used as like a way of facilitating that transformation that can occur? Yeah, that's great. And so neuroplasticity, meaning like the brain's ability to change and adapt its structure and function. Yeah. So our brain's can change and will absolutely function in new ways. Um, but, and you also mentioned earlier what fires together, wires together. <laughs> so this is like some good jargon, neuroscience jargon. <laughs> um, but there's this idea that, you know, we know say that if we are activated by something in our environment due to a previous trauma and that causes our body to respond and then it causes our behaviors to change as a result of it, we have the ability to uh, with intentional work to recognize one, okay, this, what's coming up for me or what I'm seeing now, it's reactivating old trauma. This is old trauma that I have. Recognize where our body is, what's going on with my body. This is trauma. And then intentionally engage in behaviors that are different, that can bring us to calm or bring us to a more settled state so that our behaviors are not, aren't just being um, manipulated by that trauma that we're actually intervening through mindfulness and intentionality to do something different. And as we are exposed to things that activate us, when we do something different behaviorally, and when we engage with our nervous system differently, we start changing the way that our brain is wired. So that ideally over time, when that initial activation point or that stressor enters our environment, we don't necessarily get so heightened. We don't immediately move to 100 of fight mode, right? Maybe we just move to 20, right? And then we take a walk and we have a drink of water and we're able to carry on with our day. Whereas previously that activator or that stressor in our environment might've brought us to 100. It led us to screaming. It led us to having to like having rupture in relationships around us and then us leaving or ghosting a situation for a very long period of time. So we're able to mediate our responses um, with that intentionality and that mindfulness that then changes the way our brain functions and responds to the initial stressor. I want to like throw into like um, mentioning back, I, Dr. Michael Yelbert is like a really um, a huge influence for me and like my personal journey of like understanding like what trauma is um, and all of that. Um, a lot of his work revolves around like, right? Like this idea of like neuroplasticity um, and specifically around um, like the healing of um, intergenerational and like historical trauma. So it does um, some really cool work around like neural decolonization um, and how that can be um, used as a tool of, um, you know, um, transforming through um, trauma. Um, I think also just highlighting again, you kind of like mentioned it, right? But um, because we have like the ability and like the gift of neuroplasticity and rewiring the brain, right? Like the, you're not necessarily um, stuck 
um, with trauma in the way that it might be currently manifesting. That's a great way to put it. We're not stuck with the way that it currently manifests for us, for sure. We can't change our history or the history of our ancestors. We can act, yeah, we very much can intervene with how that informs our functioning in our daily life. I, I would, I know we've mentioned it and like talked about it um, within a previous episode. Um, shout out to the, um, you know, community, um, the healing of community trauma um, episode that we've done before. <laughs> yes, miss you if you are listening or listeners, <laughs> go back and listen to that. Um, we'll have a link in the description um, of the episode for that episode. But I, I think that it's worthwhile to like kind of touch on that within this episode as well. Um, how are we seeing, right? Because those um, having resources to pull from and specifically like relational, like relationality to pull from and have support um, from is so important um, just in general in life, but particularly in this work. Um, could you kind of like touch on like, how we're seeing community come together to um, like address trauma or to like help transform. Yeah, I mean, I think again, you, you like community and relationships are a resource, right? And so um, there are obviously clinical pathways to doing this work that are very specific and that are very much um, based in like evidence-based research and they're giving us tools and coping strategies and they're very necessary. That's a, that's a major component, but we know that buffering that or our ability to talk with other people that have the same lived experience for us to be able to talk to someone that is not a professional that is like, I have lived through that and I'm here right now living through it. And here's what I've done and being able to commune and share stories. That's really powerful. That can take away some of the stress that we carry of like, oh my gosh, this happened to me. How am I going to continue? You know, like, oh, my life is not over as a result of this. <laughs> I can live a meaningful life. And actually this person has, and they're and I'm witnessing that. That's really powerful and important. Yeah, um, that, that group challenging um, of that narrative trauma gets you stuck in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and just, yeah, having that validation from folks as well is really important. And I think, you know, Community, there's so much power in community, whether it's um, actual direct mutual aid that we're offering each other and collective care and concern for folks listening and validating and working to create a different outcome. Um, you know, and activism and advocacy is absolutely a step to healing in many cases for trauma because um, when our trauma has, when we've experienced trauma as a result of systemic oppression, um, being able to actually take that step to fight back or to do something with other people that you're supported around changing that system is really important, really important. And is a huge step for folks um, in kind of healing and, and taking power back when it might've been taken away. Um, but, you know, even things like prayer, singing together, humming together. Um, these are things that people have been doing for a very long time that we know to be regulating to our nervous systems. Um, you know, we co-regulate together. We can dysregulate together. Like if I got on this call and I was really heightened and really pissed off and I was just like coming at you really hard and very pressured, you know, you would likely would take some of that on. Uh, you'd be like, oh my gosh, my guest for the podcast is really dysregulated. Like <laughs> I'm a little nervous about how this is going to go. And we would be somewhat dysregulated together. But in the same sense, um, 
we can regulate each other if we're both calm and we're both saying, okay, we're going to meet whatever challenge comes up as we approach it. And we're breathing together. We, we, our bodies start to match the, um, the tone and the posture uh, and the breath even of those around us. You know, it's like the power of when a small child might be crying and you just put your hand on their back and you breathe with them. Over time, they're going to come into regulation with you and they're going to start to breathe again. And so that's, that's when, you know, the more bodies you have that are engaged in more intentional ritualistic movement together can be extremely powerful in resetting the nervous system and bringing us back down to a place of groundedness and connectedness so we can go forward from there. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. In kind of like a touching on like the like the the individual like transformation that can happen like through like neuroplasticity, but also how that can um, work in like community situations and settings, how communities like can come together. I think like following this thread of um, like transformation and like growth and like working through trauma. Um, I guess are there answers out there of a place to like kind of like start and where we can like begin to start um, doing the work of like kind of working through and processing um, trauma that might show up um, individually or collectively. Um, do you know of like the answer? <laughs> I, I definitely don't have the, uh, the answer. <laughs> Never <laughs> know the answers. <laughs> you know, the, you can't, oh, what did James Baldwin say? He has a wonderful quote that's essentially like, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it's faced. Um, you know, and there's the old adage in throw more jargon in there that what we resist persists. And that's some therapy speak. And that works though, I think on individual and collective levels. We need to acknowledge and to see and to not fight against the trauma that we have maybe experienced or the trauma and stress that we have perpetuated. Because when we ignore it or we pretend that it doesn't exist, it continues, it persists, it will continue to show up. Um, you know, and that's very much individual work that we can do. And I think that is also the challenge and the ask currently of our country and our society is will we actually reckon with the damage and the trauma and the generational trauma of our country's inception? And folks don't wanna do that work. And so it persists. And so we're seeing it come up again. And so that's collective, that's societal, but that's also individual, um, but it's scary. Sometimes we don't know why our body's responding or we don't remember traumas or we packed them deep down and we have not looked at them for a long time or maybe they happened before we were even verbal. And so we don't even have the words for it. So it takes a lot of curiosity. It takes vulnerability um, and it takes support. You know, we can't do this work alone. Um, our bodies don't thrive alone. And so we need to, we need to partner with folks that are willing to do it with us. <laughs> no, thank you for summarizing that and sharing that for folks. Um, I think really the key, key, key takeaways, um, uh, um, I least hope that folks get from this is that it is an embodied, like body felt experience. Um, uh, and that it, it really is um, 
the the process of processing um, needs to be a collaborative um, experience, you know, in some way, um, like lean on like those supports um, that you have um, engage with community if that um, in whatever capacity looks and feels right for you. But um, it's, it's, a, it's a felt, a deeply felt um, like human experience. Yeah, and I know Quinn, you do a great job of always throwing resources and links to the show notes. And um, if those aren't serving you, listener, please reach out. We'll be happy to, to support you, find a place to start. If this is a journey you'd like to begin and you're just feeling overwhelmed. So health promotion team would be happy to help guide you and provide some support. <laughs> Absolutely. And and thank you for adding that, Amy. Um, and thank you again so much for being a part of this and like collaborating in this. I always, I, I love like listening and like learning from you. Always have such awesome insight to like share on things. So thank you for taking the time to be here. Um, is there anything else that you would like to add? No, thank you so much for having me, Glenn. Awesome. Alrighty. Well, hopefully um, you can, yeah, listeners, you found this um, as a useful resource. And again, um, There'll be a whole bunch of like links to like resources um, and other um, like uh, like I'll include some like videos um, from um, other folks with that focus within this field um, in different capacities um, to kind of be like further um, deep dive into understanding trauma if that's something that you'd like to engage with. Um, but again, I hope you all can take a deep breath and uh, do some self-care and take care of yourself. Um, and you've got some things to, to like think about um, and be curious over. Um, but um, until next time, listeners, take care. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the What's Up podcast. We'll catch up with you next week. We at Shack are fully committed to the physical and emotional health and wellness of PSU students. Please call ahead to use our health services for flu shots, free COVID testing, or general appointments at 503-725-2800. Counseling services are still available via telehealth, and you can schedule your appointments by calling that same number at 503-725-2800. If you're looking for more health and wellness resources, you can check out our online health magazine that gets sent to your pdx.edu email every Wednesday, or you can download the CampusWell app. Also, feel free to check out the virtual MindSpot experience to rest, relax, and rejuvenate wherever you have internet access. We will be including resources links in the episode description, as well as a link to the episode transcript. If you have any questions about health, wellness, shack, or anything we discussed in this podcast, please fill out the Google form in the episode description. Thanks for listening and take care. We'll see you next week on What's Up, Wellness from the Third Floor.